Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 194, Normandy in Anatolia. Last time, we followed the Emperor Romanos Theogenes as he raced back and forth trying to stop the Turkic raids, which had suddenly intensified into twice-annual nightmares. Romanos failed in his mission and was captured by the Seljuk Sultan on the fields outside Manzikert. What happened next broke something within the Byzantine political system. The debate about who was to blame for this disaster and the civil war which followed opened a damaging rift amongst the ruling elite. Theogenes was blinded and died, but the palace didn't seem to have won the day. The regime of Michael Dukas was damned by everyone, not only for its betrayal of Romanus, but because there was no money left. Theogenes had debased the coinage and spent most of a year's worth of tax receipts on his campaign. The government of Constantinople had always been able to buy its way out of trouble like this, but not anymore. The debased coinage had forced a pay cut onto all of its dependents, decreasing their willingness to cooperate. Add to all this, there was now a massive hole in the empire's border defences. Eastern Armenia was no longer Roman, meaning there was a straight line through the mountains into Anatolia. When spring 1073 arrived, several Turkic tribes rode onto the plateau and began to loot the countryside. This meant that tax collection across the centre of Anatolia was impossible. This was a crisis of epic proportions, and you won't be surprised to hear that Michael VII's government was incapable of dealing with it. Before we get to the narrative, let's just make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to geography. If you think of Anatolia as a rectangle, then the defences of the far right had collapsed, but only in the centre. In the north, Theodosiopolis was still in Roman hands, and in the south, so was Antioch and its surrounding cities. The coasts of Anatolia were all shielded somewhat from the plateau by mountain ranges, so it was only the centre of the rectangle that is currently being raided by the nomads. 
Also remember that this was not a political conquest at this stage. The Turks were just enjoying free pasture and undefended villas to ransack. I should also clarify that we have no information on numbers, or even the movements of these bands of raiders. We know that throughout the 1070s, starting in the spring after Theoyanis was blinded, Turkic tribes moved into Anatolia and began staying for the winter. Our historians were not able to track their movements, nor would that have suited their narrative style, which was to focus on the exploits of individuals. Finally, I should just say that most walled and defended Roman cities were held during these years. At this stage, the nomads simply roamed the countryside looking for more undefended wealth. Okay, let's get back to the narrative. 1071 had been a political earthquake within the empire. Not only the defeat at Manzikert, but also the Norman takeover of Italy. It's always felt a little incongruous how much Constantinople cared about keeping its Italian possessions, but now it becomes clearer that Italy had played a vital role in shielding Byzantium. The Norman takeover received significant press on the other side of the Adriatic. In the Serbian statelets dotting the Balkan coastline, this Byzantine defeat suggested weakness that could be exploited. The form this took in 1073 was another attempt to revive Bulgarian independence. A wealthy landowner from the Skopje region was agitating to throw off the Roman yoke and appealed to the ruler of neighbouring Dukia to help him. The ruler of Dukia was a descendant of Samuel, the Tsar of Bulgaria who'd fought Basil II. So he sent his son Bodin with a small army to march into Roman territory. Bodin was enthusiastically greeted by the Skopje rebels and crowned a Tsar. Byzantium's western armies had by now returned from Manzikert, battered and bruised but still intact. The dukes of Skopje led out an army to put down the rebels, but was defeated. However, the insurrection was over by the end of the summer. A rebel force tried to seize the city of Castoria in northern Greece, and was pushed back. Interestingly, the sources imply that the army who beat them included many ethnic Bulgarians. For whatever reason, they did not identify with the uprising, and preferred the status quo within the empire. Bowdoin tried to hold Skopje, but was soon faced with a large imperial army dispatched from Constantinople. The Tsar retreated into the mountains, and when he tried to launch a surprise attack, he was captured and sent into exile. The Romans desperately needed the Balkans to remain quiet, since it was now providing most of the state's tax revenue. That same summer, the court scraped together enough cash to send an army into Anatolia to try and chase the Turks away. Desperate for loyal commanders, Michael turned to Isaac Komnenos, the brother of Manuel, who had led troops under Romanos just before Manzikert. Isaac's younger brother, Alexius, also worked with him. We estimate that the army they led out from the Bosphorus contained about 4,000 men one-tenth of the number that Romanus had taken to Manzikert. Now, obviously, it had to be smaller. Western troops were putting down the Bulgarian uprising, and this was not a campaign of conquest, so no Pechenegs or Armenian infantry were being hired. 
But given that the only way the Byzantines knew how to defeat the Turks was through numerical superiority, this was not an awe-inspiring sight. The court had thrown together what they could afford and hoped that the scattered nomads would flee at the sight of resistance. Roger Crepin, the leader of the empire's Norman mercenaries, had passed away that winter. His lieutenant, Roussel de Bayeul, took charge of his compatriots and marched with the army. They made their way across the plateau to Iconium in the Anatolicon. Some nomads did indeed flee at their approach, but at this point things began to fall apart. The story we're told is that Roussel protested when one of his men was hauled before a military judge for harming a local. Isaac preferred justice to compromise, and the next morning Roussel and his men were gone. Like Crepin and Hervé before him, Roussel believed that he could seize a piece of Byzantium for himself and use it to get a better deal from the palace. Though it was a blow to the imperial army, Komnenos pressed on. The Turks had coalesced at Caesarea and waited for him. The two sides fought a pitched battle, and once again the steppe archers easily won the day. Like Romanos, Isaac was captured in the rout and his army scattered. We are told that some of the fleeing Byzantine soldiers were refused entry to nearby cities. The terrified inhabitants had seen Turkic bands lay waste to their farms that summer and were nervous that these soldiers would bring further ruin upon them. For the nomads, this was tremendous news. Clearly, no imperial army would bother them for at least another six months. So they ransomed Isaac back to the imperial authorities. They probably used that cash to buy supplies from the cities of the plateau. Now, that's just speculation. But cut off from communication and exchange with the rest of the empire, what else were the inhabitants of Anatolia to do? Though no one knew it at this stage... Isaac's force was to be the last Roman army ever to march across Anatolia and reach Caesarea, a traditional spot for the eastern armies to muster. As if another defeat wasn't bad enough for the palace, news arrived that Roussel had succeeded where Isaac had failed. The Normans had driven some Turks away from Sebastea and set up shop there. Selling their services to the local population, the Normans began collecting tax revenue and using it to establish their own rule in the area. This is what made the twin attacks of Norman and Turk so damaging to Byzantium. Neither of these opponents cared at all that they were in the midst of the Roman Empire. They bypassed existing state structures each side viewed Anatolia simply as another country to extract a living from. It had towns and countryside, mountains and sea. It might as well have been Iran or France as far as they were concerned. The distant government of Constantinople was simply an obstacle to fight or negotiate with. The invaders were agile, politically as well as physically. The Byzantine government, by contrast, was completely inflexible. Though the Turks were seen as a dangerous menace, their potential to form a rival state was not recognised. While the Normans, a small band of irritants, were treated as a rival source of power that had to be extinguished. 
Michael's government therefore spent its waning resources on raising another army to fight Roussel rather than the Turks. Ataliates recognized this dichotomy in his history. Having seen Roman arms fail in person, our historian muses on whether the government could have used Roussel to help defend the people. But the preoccupation of emperors is with legitimacy and authority. Roussel was flouting the rule of the Vasilefs. He had taken over the government's role in his new fiefdom, and that was a challenge that could not be left to stand. In 1074, then, another small Roman army was raised and sailed across to Asia. The Caesar John Ducas, Michael's uncle, was put in charge. Given the losses suffered by the eastern Tachmata over the last few years, the government had to hire more mercenaries to outfit this force. Amongst them were a band of fresh Norman recruits. You can see where this is going. The army didn't get far past Dorylaeum, the first staging post on the road east, before Roussel tracked them down. Inevitably, the new Normans defected to Roussel's banner while the two sides awaited battle. Another Roman detachment also withdrew when their commander, Nicephorus Votaniates, advised John not to give battle. Remember that name. The Caesar ignored him and was easily defeated. He and his son were captured in the rout. This was to be the last Roman army even to march into Anatolia before the First Crusade. The government's inflexible response to an escalating crisis had effectively ended their ability to raise eastern armies. Roussel marched to Chrysopolis, the Asian suburb of the capital, looted and burnt it. Presumably he hoped that this would lead to the government giving him supreme command in Anatolia. If he was given a generous court salary and control over the empire's forces, then presumably he would have been happy to fight the Turks while enriching himself and his followers. But at this point Michael would have been mad to cave in. The time to negotiate with Roussel was when the empire had some leverage. Now they had no reason to trust him at all. Ambassadors were sent to negotiate with him, and his wife and child, resident at the capital, were released as a gesture of goodwill. But sensing that he wasn't going to get what he wanted, Roussel decided on a more audacious move. He brought forward his highest-ranking prisoner, the Caesar John Ducas, and crowned him emperor. He then began promoting other Romans into his service, creating a sort of shadow court. This attempt to stir up civil war at a distance was not successful, though. The peasants of Anatolia may have bowed to John when he was present, but they knew who the real power behind the throne was. What Roussel's theatrics had done was to convince Michael that eliminating the Westerner was now his most pressing priority. So the government took another fateful step, who could they turn to to defeat the Normans? The only power who could. The nomads currently raiding their lands. The closest tribe were led by a chieftain named Artuk. The government made contact with him and presumably offered him cash 
to take the Normans out. The nomads outnumbered the Normans comfortably, lured them into a tiring chase, and picked them off with relentless arrow fire. As was becoming customary, both John and Roussel were captured in the aftermath. The Turks were again happy to ransom their prisoners to the Romans. The government reluctantly coughed up and sent the funds to redeem both men. But Roussel's wife, now living in a nearby fortress, sent chests full of his ill-gotten gains, which arrived far quicker than the imperial gold. The nomads had got what they wanted, so they let Roussel go. This exasperating development allowed the Norman and his followers to return to their original home in the Armenia Khan, where they resumed their position as defenders for hire. The provincials were only too happy to see them. Left undefended by Constantinople, they were pleased to see a garrison who would at least attempt to resist the Turkic incursions. John Ducas arrived back at court a short while later, and like Romanus before him, made sure he did so in full monastic robes with his tonsure showing. His nephew Michael excused his brief tenure as an emperor and encouraged him to disappear quickly from the limelight. By this point, the government were struggling desperately to find any cash or soldiers to send east. Michael had, though, married the daughter of the King of Georgia, Georgi II, and through intermediaries, the deal was made to surrender to the Caucasians the remaining Roman possessions in the area, as in the lands of Tau, which Basil II had captured all the way up to and including Theodosiopolis. In exchange, 6,000 Georgian troops would be sailed to the Armenia Khan in the summer of 1075, where they could help defeat Roussel. But without enough cash to pay them for very long, many of the Georgians ended up deserting. The remnant, left under the command of Nicephorus Paleologos, was defeated by the Normans. Having squandered so many resources on the Norman problem, the task of capturing Roussel was given to anyone who wanted it. Keen to prove himself, Alexius Komnenos, in his late teens, took on the challenge. This is, of course, the future emperor, who will finally bring stability to this chaos and oversee the First Crusade's passage towards Jerusalem. We talked last episode about how both Alexius's daughter and her husband will write histories under his regime. They dramatize his early adventures, emphasizing his bravery and cunning, and there may be truth in them, but the basic facts are that the government once again put out a bounty on Roussel's head and the local Turks stepped in to collect. Alexios was the emperor's bagman. He paid the Turks and received the captured Norman leader. The Turks and Normans apparently sat down to a feast together, during which the nomads double-crossed the westerners and arrested Roussel. They then took him to the city of Amasia, where Alexius was waiting. Awkwardly, Komnenos did not have the amount which the Turks were asking, so he had to turn to the local notables, who were on good terms with Roussel, to beg for money. And naturally, the persuasive Alexios managed to talk them round and raise the sum needed, but it may be that the locals paid up in the hopes that Roussel would return to defending them. 
Though the episode is presented as a victory for Alexios, it exposes the cruel reality of life in Anatolia. The Amasians asked Alexios, What will happen when you leave? The government aren't protecting us. The Normans are. You're asking us to hand him over to you, and then we'll be alone. Before a riot could break out, Alexios supposedly put a blindfold over Roussel and showed him to the crowds, claiming that he'd blinded him. You'd think this would make things worse, but apparently it made further discussion irrelevant, since in this condition Roussel could no longer fight. Quite why Roussel wasn't blinded, I'm not sure. Perhaps he was still needed to help bring more of his men to heal. Whatever really happened, Roussel was taken back to Constantinople, where he would become acquainted with the less pleasant parts of the city's prison. En route, Alexius apparently popped inland to see his family's estate at Castamon in Paphlagonia. Like most Byzantine nobles, Alexius had grown up at the capital and had never visited the countryside whose rent paid for his urban upbringing. He found the small town deserted, the locals having fled for whatever safe haven they could find. It's a fitting vignette to sum up the state of Anatolia during the 1070s. Next time, we will focus on the regime of Michael VII and the desperate measures they took to try and ride out this crisis. But for now, I think we really should talk a little more about the dynamics of this five-year period during which Anatolia was essentially lost to the Empire. Let's return again to geography. By this point, the Empire had abandoned all its possessions in the mountains. The garrisons in Tau, Tehran, and Vaspurakan had all been recalled. Ignoring Antioch and Cilicia for a moment, the strategic situation had returned to the days of the Caliphate. Anatolia was now completely open to invasions from the mountains. Back in the day, of course, large garrisons were stationed in each corner of our rectangle to at least threaten the Arab raiders. Those armies are long gone replaced by imperial tachmata, professional cavalry units stationed either at the capital or in the provinces. But those troops had been mauled during Romanus's campaigns and successively squandered during today's episode. This meant that practically all that was left to defend Anatolia were thematic troops, local garrisons used to sitting on the walls of their towns chilling out because raids had dried up long ago. They had no chance of facing the nomads in battle. All they could do was lock the gates and wait out the storm. But time was running out. With farmers abandoning the land and economic exchange so completely disrupted, how long before towns could no longer function in this hostile environment? Not to trivialise the situation, but life for Anatolian farmers during the 1070s was not that dissimilar to those faced with a zombie apocalypse. There was a desperation to find enough food to survive before the next wave of death came washing over the hills. Naturally, accommodation with the nomads quickly became necessary. Protection money might be paid or other forms of tribute in order to maintain peaceful relations. Needless to say, faith in the government of Constantinople ebbed away rapidly. 
This experience was different, though, depending on where you lived. Those on the West Coast were currently the least affected, whereas many abandoned the plateau altogether. In our next episode, we'll see hungry refugees pouring into Constantinople, while many found a new life on the islands off the coast. We have reports from clergymen who wrote of their shame at abandoning the posts they'd promised to stay at. In two specific areas, security was maintained, largely independently of Constantinople. One was in Trebizond, the main Byzantine port for trade with the Caucasus. You'll find it on the map in the northeast corner of Anatolia. This area was well shielded from the plateau by the Pontic Mountains, and although the nomads did travel there, they were chased off by a Byzantine officer named Theodore Gabras, who continued to hold it. The second area was Antioch, Cilicia, and the other former jihad cities of that area. As you know, Antioch, under normal circumstances, maintained a force of up to 4,000 imperial soldiers, and many neighbouring cities like Edessa and Tarsus would have had decent garrisons. These troops had also suffered during Romanus's reign, but it seems likely that most of them stayed where they were while Anatolia was being lost. They were still needed to defend the area from Seljuk aggression or attacks from Aleppo. It seems slightly bizarre that a pocket of solid Roman defence would stay out of the fighting, but this is how the nomads made a mockery of imperial planning. They had little interest in Cilicia, so long as they could follow the grasslands all the way from Azerbaijan to Nicaea. Cilicia therefore received a major influx of refugees, including many of the ex-Armenian nobility who'd accepted lands in Cappadocia in exchange for surrendering their kingdoms to the Romans. Their children and grandchildren now fled from Turkic inroads, but would fight for Cilicia, which, again, was shielded from the plateau by mountain passes, something which the Armenians knew a thing or two about defending. Another Romanos appointee, Philaritos Vrachamios, would eventually take charge of the entire area. And of course, he kept its tax revenue to pay for the forces which defended it. Practically independent from the empire, but obviously keeping a close eye on developments of the capital, Antioch and Cilicia continued to hold on. It's worth saying while we're here that the Turks did not attempt to conquer Armenia. They held the strategic fortresses, but down on the ground, power devolved back on the local Armenian population. As we saw earlier, the same process took place in the Caucasus. The reason that Anatolia suffered so much was because its central plateau possessed the same climate and landscape as the steppe which the nomads had come from. The fact that Anatolia was separated from the Seljuk realm by the Armenian mountains was also another huge bonus for the nomads. As we talked about briefly during our discussion of Alp Arslan's motives, the sultans were trying to rein the nomads in. In the cities of Iraq and Iran, the Seljuks had captured some of the most valuable possessions in the known world. If let loose, the nomads would trample over the civilized lands 
to get to the next patch of grass. And so successive sultans had tried to cow and corner them, keeping them from doing too much damage. The nomads chafed against this control, and so Anatolia became a land where they could be free. At the start of this episode, the Romans still had a chance to restore some kind of control to the situation, but their inflexibility and Roussel's intervention made that impossible. Byzantine inflexibility has been baked into our narrative this century. The government needed to empower generals to properly defend the frontiers, but they were terrified that if they did, they would be overthrown. So we get what we got here. Armies being led out by loyal but inexperienced commanders who were doomed before they even set off. It is strange that the Romans continued to pursue formal battles with the nomads after Romanus's reign. It should have been clear that a better policy would have been one of guerrilla warfare. That is what had forced the Pechenegs to the peace table. The cities of the plateau were still in friendly hands. A methodical track-and-ambush strategy might have at least dissuaded the nomads from staying for the winter. Forcing them to trek back and forth across the mountains would have been a victory of sorts at this point. Perhaps the money wasn't available to keep soldiers in the field indefinitely. Perhaps again it was political. It was just too problematic to empower a commander to carry this out. A big question our sources don't address is why the Western armies didn't become involved in this process. Several commanders from Manzikert were still available in the Balkans, like Vrienios and Tarchaniotis, but they were not asked to take charge in Anatolia. Again, was it political, or did the Western commanders not want to go east? And then there are the Normans. Roussel's adventure in Anatolia put the seal on the loss of the plateau to the Turks. His power play drained the government of time and resources. A truly flexible response might have seen the government take a more lenient stance with him. Yes, the Normans were undermining Byzantine authority, but they were not raiding the countryside, nor could they threaten Constantinople. Was there a better way to use them, rather than wasting so much capital on bringing them to heel? It's certainly possible though Antony Caldellus is scathing about them. He implies that Roussel would have attempted to conquer the empire, just as Sicily and England had already fallen to his brethren. He says, It was from traumatic experience, and not prejudice, that Byzantine writers constantly call them treacherous, greedy, and violent. So, that is how things stood in the mid-1070s. It was still possible to resist further inroads into Anatolia. The Byzantines just needed to find a way to work together, to heal their divisions, to recognize the danger and embrace unity. Next time, the Byzantines turn on one another like a nest of vipers. A series of increasingly mad scrambles for the throne destroy what's left of Roman defences in the east, and the gates of the remaining cities of Anatolia are thrown open to the Turks 
all for the right to be hailed as Vasilevs of a much diminished empire. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.